Welcome to the Automotive Diagnostic Podcast. We're going to explore ways to sharpen our diagnostic skills, find learning resources, and hear from experts in the automotive field. Hey, what's going on, automotive world? This is the Automotive Diagnostic Podcast. My name is Sean Tipping. I'll be your host today. Thank you so much for tuning in for another episode of the show. What I want to share with you today is a day in the life of a mobile technician. Um, That's what I do. It's kind of my part-time job, I guess. Uh, I teach at college, but I also do uh, mobile diagnostics and programming. I'm sure you're probably familiar with that if you listen to the podcast. But uh, I had a busy day the other day with number of interesting jobs, uh, diagnostic stuff. Uh, one of them was just solely programming. The programming stuff, if everything goes right, is generally pretty boring. <laughs> Nothing interesting happens when you click some buttons and everything goes right. But uh, when we get into some diagnostic stuff, uh, it can get very interesting what we see day to day. And honestly, that's what draws me towards it, right? Uh, We go out, we see these challenging problems, unique problems, things that other people haven't seen before or can't solve. Um, That's, that's why I'm there. I want to, I want to see those. I want to experience that. I want to challenge myself. I mean, I guess that's a big part of what draws me towards it as well is the challenge. If I'm not being challenged in my job, in my life, I get bored pretty quickly and want to do something else. I want to actually find something that does push me to be better. And, and that's what this is all about. So anyways, um, I'm going to walk you through the jobs that I went through. Uh, this was last week. Started my day out, actually went down to the college. Uh, I didn't have class this day. It was a Friday and uh, just did some behind the scenes stuff. And uh, for anybody who's not familiar, when you teach a college program, you do have a lot of behind the scenes stuff. There's committees, there's gradings, there's prep work. Uh, you're constantly adjusting your classes, uh, maintaining a program, a shop, AAC accreditation. So we always have things to do. So anyways, I won't bore you with all those details, but that kept me busy till about uh, 1030 uh, that morning. From there, and this was actually pretty cool. I had a student that came along with me to all my jobs uh, this particular day. I offer this up to my students, of course, you know, with COVID and everything, it makes it a little different, but say, Hey, you want to tag along on these jobs and, you know, be my helper, but also just to see what's going on see what's out there, what shops are challenged with come along. I'd be more than happy to have you just be, be with me and see, you know, everything that we're doing and how, what we're learning in class directly applies to what we're fixing out in the real world. So he came with me, which is cool. But my My first job was a 2016 Ford F-250. And the reason I was called into the shop was to program the keys. That's what they called me for. They said, hey, we need two keys programmed to this Ford. And I didn't uh, ask any questions on the phone as far as what was going on. But once I got there, kind of asked them, what's the deal? Why do you need these keys programmed? Well, it turns out They had a battery die Uh, for one reason or another. I have a feeling it was because it's been really cold up here 
well, not in the last couple of days, but going back a couple of weeks, we were, uh, you know, negative 25, neg- negative 30 degrees Fahrenheit. And it, it's been really cold. We had a cold snap. And so, of course, we have a lot of batteries dying and stuff like that. But anyways, after a battery replacement, this truck would not start, this big F-250. So they had it towed into the shop and they replaced the battery, of course, and they were also not able to get this to start. Now, they figured out with their scan tool that there was some sort of security anti-theft issue going on. Of course, when you crank it, the starter doesn't do anything. And on the dash, it says starting system fault right on the dash. So even without a scan tool, uh, you can kind of guess where we're headed with this. But within the scan tool, they were able to see that there were codes in the body control module of this vehicle that referenced the keys. So they called me in because they didn't have the equipment necessary to program keys to this particular Ford. So after this, I'm like, okay, it seems strange that the vehicle would lose the keys just after battery replacement, but I'll check it out. I did scan it. They did have those codes. Not only was there a code in the BCM referencing that the minimum amount of keys were not programmed for a Ford, we need at least two keys programmed to the vehicle, but there was also a code in the BCM referencing that the PCM, the powertrain control module, was not identified. Um, This code basically is saying that the handshake between the BCM and the PCM wasn't there. It hadn't been performed. Okay, well, that's interesting. So let me just start off with what I came out there to do. Let's program some keys and see what happens. Well, I go through, and you have to do the 10 minutes wait to get into the PAT system on this vehicle. I go through, and I program both keys. And they actually had two keys for me, which was nice. They were prepared for that. And I programmed both of these keys. As it turns out, both of these keys already recognized as programmed. So that code that was in the BCM that said there was not enough keys programmed really didn't make a whole lot of sense because even after I programmed these keys, that code was present. Of course, I tried clearing it a couple times, didn't make a difference, Um, still says not enough keys programmed. And it still says there's no handshake between the BCM and the PCM. So I go into the data stream of the BCM with these keys in the ignition, obviously turning it on. And it shows as a data pit in the BCM that both keys are recognized as program. There's a data pit in there that you can see that. Okay, well, that's interesting that we have a code that I cannot clear that says there's not enough keys program. We have the two, there are two, they're both programmed, they're both recognized. That's really strange. I'm not sure what's going on there. I look at the data pit in the BCM that says, PCM identification or PCM verified, I think was the actual data PID. This data PID indicates that the handshake between the BCM body control module and the PCM is complete, that they actually um, have a handshake together that they've identified. They belong to the same vehicle. It's okay to start the vehicle. Um, That said, I believe it was not verified in that data pit. I, th- I think that was the the indication, but basically saying that I don't recognize a PCM. Okay, so what do we do in this case? If there is no handshake between the two control modules, what we need to do is a parameter reset. And this is also done through the PATS functions. And I'm using the IDS here. You can use some other scan tools. I know the Autel IM series will do this and uh, probably some other Autel scan tools as well. But either way, I do my 10 minute wait 
I get into the paths functions. I do the parameter reset and it says successful, says it went through, it's good to go. Um, I follow the instruction cycle, the key, same thing, same codes, no start. Okay. I figured, well, let me just try this again. Try it again. Same thing. Um, I even tried a capacitive discharge here just in case. I mean, <laughs> based on what they were telling me, that's what led to the problem in the first place. But I figured I'd give it a try. Um, same thing. We tried the parameter reset one more time. And honestly, I feel like I wasted a lot of time on this vehicle because that's 30 minutes there if you do that three times or maybe it was four times with the keys, but I was there for a while. I wanted to make sure I tried everything uh, to see if I could get this to go. I couldn't. Nothing happened. Same codes in the BCM. Even though it said the parameters reset was successful, wouldn't go through. Okay, so what do we do at this point? Um, of course, checking for known problems, service bulletins, anything like that. Didn't really see anything indicated. Um, so I went into uh, the programming options, or I should say reprogramming options for the BCM. Because at this point, the only codes that are present are in my BCM. And that's where all the problems are pointing to is that there's a problem with that module. PCM hasn't set any codes here and no other module is setting any codes. I'm not worried about the keys because those are recognized as program, meaning that the um, actual PATS receiver is working. It's communicating with the BCM, according to the data PIDs anyways. What I'm worried about is the BCM. Again, setting codes that keys are not programmed or the minimum keys are not programmed, even though it does recognize them and that it won't do the handshake with the PCM, even though it says it's successful when I do it. So I want to check for updates to see maybe there's a programming option and I can reset this thing. There are no updates available for this body control module in this Ford. So what I'm going to try doing before I go any further, is to do a PMI, which is Programmable Module Installation on this BCM. I'm going to treat it like it was new. And uh, if you were listening to a recent podcast, we fixed a problem in a Ford with a network code by doing a P PMI, basically treating it like a new module, programming it, and our code was gone. So we'll give this a shot. Maybe we'll wipe it and maybe it you know, had some sort of weird logic lockup when the battery died and we'll get it out of it by programming. And I attempted it and it didn't work. And um, we tried the parameter reset one more time. And I said this, okay, this is it. I've spent enough time on this thing. Still same thing, same codes, keys not programmed or minimum keys not programmed and uh, you know, no handshake between the powertrain and the body control module. Okay. At this point, I'm ready to call a body control module. There's really not a whole lot else it can be. I mean, I could go in, I could check powers and grounds to that module, but everything else on the BCM is functioning properly. And it just, the codes don't make sense as far as what I'm seeing. So I told them, get a BCM for this thing, bring me back in and I'll I'll program the new BCM and we'll go from there. So we'll come back to that one because I had to go back the next day um, after they got the part for that one. But that's where I left that job. So I said, get a BCM, call me when you got it. The next job, this was much simpler. Uh, this was just a 2005 Saturn L300 with these engines were terrible. I used to work on a lot of these. It had the Saab 3.0 
liter engine and they were just a nightmare. But anyways, <laughs> this thing needed an engine control module programmed and this one went very smooth. Just boom, SPS, buy the VIN, program it, do the theft learn, which actually said I needed a 10 minute wait, but it didn't make me wait 10 minutes, which was pretty cool. I like it when that sort of thing happens. It just went through real quick, did an idle relearn, Checked it for codes. I didn't even have to do a crankshaft relearn, probably because it was a Saab motor and not an actual GM motor, but that one was done. I like them when they go smooth. So that was my next job, programming ECM on a Saturn L300. And onward from there, I was going to a transmission shop that had a 2004 Infiniti G35 that did not start. Crank, no start. So I get there and this particular shop, the guy that I deal with, the technician, and I think he kind of runs the shop as well, he has really broken English. So we have a tough time communicating um, to get all the details across and this kind of made it challenging for me and it does in a lot of cases, but um, they do a lot of work there and I actually go in to program a lot of TCMs for them. And they did replace the transmission on this G35 Infinity. What I didn't get was all the details up front. I think maybe he tried to explain it to me and I didn't quite understand it, but we'll get there. Anyways, I'll treat this like a crank no start. So what's going on? If you have a crank no start, what are you missing? Air fuel spark. Those are the things that we want to check. I listened to it first, of course, when I'm cranking. Sounds great. Compression sounds very even. Sounds like a strong motor. Okay, cool. Check it for codes. Nothing pertaining to what we have going on. There was a circuit code for the mass airflow sensor. Cleared it. It wasn't back. And I think it was because they had the air duct unplugged at one point or another trying to start this thing. I, I would imagine they were probably trying to add some supp supplemental fuel or something like that. It's a pretty common thing that um, you know people will try to do to get something going. So first things first, easiest thing to check on this thing is spark. I check for spark. I don't seem to have any. I picked the coil that was easiest to access. I, I didn't have any spark from what I could see on there. Okay, so that's something. I did see on the scan tool I had RPM, so I think I have a crankshaft sensor that's registering, but um, we'll, we'll continue on. The next thing I want to check is fuel injection pulse. Now, I was able to check cylinder number one here for fuel injection pulse, and I was using my U-scope, and when I was looking at the pattern, the waveform for the control side of the injector on number one, I actually saw that I had one pulse, pulled it down the ground, activating that number one injector, and then nothing, and this was during cranking. And luckily, I had my helper here to do the cranking, which, boy, that is nice to have somebody in the car cranking for you. You don't get that often when you're mobile, but I did here, and so cranking out of the vehicle, I have one pulse on the injector, and then nothing. And it never even really tried to start. And I thought, well, this is weird, but I've seen something like this before, particularly on Nissans. When Nissans are out of time, meaning that the camshaft and crankshaft correlation is out and it's out of time far enough, uh, especially during the cranking, the engine control module will pulse the in injector and potentially the coil. I don't know if I checked the right coil or not. But they'll pulse them one time 
and then that'll be it. And then after the ECM recognizes that, hey, we're not in time, it stops firing the injectors, it stops firing the coils, meaning, of course, you're not going to start because this engine's out of time. So immediately that's what I'm thinking, is that this engine is out of time. And so, okay, let me grab a quick cam crank correlation. And so we look at the crankshaft and we look at the camshaft. And I will make a note on these, um, and this was true of a lot of Nissans and Infinities. If you look at the camshaft sensor waveform during cranking only, this is cranking only, you'll see a really weird pattern where the, the highs and lows of the pattern do not look anything like they do when the engine's running. And let me tell you, this is completely normal. Um, going back a few years, uh, some people on Auto Nerds had uh, coined this as cam flop, and it's something to do with the VVT not locking during cranking, and I really can't speak to the details of it, but what I can say is this is completely normal of a normal running engine. So if you look at some of the camshaft patterns on these uh, mid-2000s Nissans, this was a 2004, you might see some really weird camshaft patterns cranking. Once they're running, they totally change and they look normal. Just be prepared for that because that can happen. And I don't want you to throw that off because it almost did when I was looking. I'm like, boy, this looks very, very strange. And I'll tell you what, I'll put a picture up in the Facebook group so I can give you a visual of what I'm talking about. Either way, even with this strange pattern, you can line them up. You can do the correlation between cam and crankshaft with the scope. And that's what I was doing. And come to find out the cam and crank are way out of alignment. I'm talking significantly out from a known good. And I found a number of these 3.5s out of a Maxima and Pathfinder, and they use this engine in a lot of different applications. None of them look like what I had. I mean, this was just like way out to lunch. And so I'm thinking, you know, I'm listening to the engine compression and it sounds fairly good, but this waveform's way off. So I want to go back and ask this guy what's going on. I was like, did this thing run before you guys did the transmission? And he said, yeah, it obviously drove in. They needed a transmission and now it doesn't start. Um, again, broken English, uh, I had to do some, some work to translate between the two of us, but I found out that it was running beforehand. So I did a little research and did a little digging on this thing and come to find out that the flex plate on the back of the crankshaft can be placed on the, that crankshaft in multiple locations, pretty much any location. You know, a lot of flex plates, the bolt holes only line up in one way. Um, that's not the case here. Um, you can pretty much put that flex plate on in any position, but the crankshaft sensor reads off of the flex plate. There's a tone wheel that's riveted or stamped to that flex plate, and that's what the crankshaft sensor reads off of. That's how the PCM references where the crankshaft is in correlation to the camshaft. So if you put that flex plate on wrong, the computer is going to have no idea where the crankshaft where the crankshaft actually is. Um, because it's going to it's going to think it's several degrees off if you move that in the wrong position. So I told him this. I was like, "Did you take the flex plate off?" And he's like, "Yeah, we did the rear main while it was out." Okay. I was like, 
you need to take this transmission back out uh, again because it sounds good it's cranking good i could have done a wps in the cylinder but it sounded really strong i was like if this thing ran before it came in and now it doesn't, you need to take the transmission out. You need to pull the flex plate off and actually line it up correctly. And so I'm actually still waiting for this to happen, but I'm pretty confident that's where we ended up on this one. So uh, got to pull the transmission back out of this one because they misalign the flex plate. And come to find out, you can do this on automatics and you can do it on managed transmissions for this age range of Nissan and Infiniti 3.5 liters. So make sure you check for that. If you have the flywheeler flex plate off, there's only one way that it can go back on. And that is how the crankshaft sensor references where the crankshaft is in relation to the camshaft. On to my next stop. We're going to keep rolling here. I had a 2014 Chevrolet Cruze and the shop called me for this Chevrolet Cruze because the instrument cluster and they actually put a clutch in this one so we got a lot of transmissions out today they put a clutch in this one and after they put a clutch in it the instrument cluster now reads in kilometers and has a warning message on the dash that says service rear axle okay this 2014 chevy cruise yes it has a rear suspension but there's no rear axle to service there's no differential there's no sensors back there there's nothing to service as far as the rear axle goes and um, in minnesota our vehicles normally read miles on the instrument cluster as opposed to kilometers and as far as what they could do with a scan tool and manual methods and YouTube videos, they could not change this. They could not get it out of kilometers and they couldn't get this service rear axle message to go away on the dash. And they actually sent the customer to drive the vehicle for a day or two. Same thing didn't happen. So they called me in, hey, can you figure out something with this vehicle? So on these cruises, the mileage for the vehicle is actually stored in the BCM. So I wanted to look at the BCM first and just see, is there something that's changed in there? Is there an option? And I didn't see anything. And I wanted to go into GMSPS because there might be a setup option. If you've worked with um, Global A vehicles, uh, particularly newer ones with General Motors, and this is J2534, you can do this. If you go into SPS programming, you pay the $40 for the VIN. There's not only programming options for these modules, but they also give you setup options for these modules as well. So that $40 gets you more than just programming a module. You might actually be able to change some things, do some relearns, things like that through the SPS application. And this is pretty handy in a number of situations like adding keys or doing transmission quick learns, things like that. Anyways, I want to see, is there anything in the BCM that allows me to change this, to alter kilometers or anything like that? Because that's where the mileage is actually stored, is in the body control module for this cruise. And maybe it lost something when the battery was disconnected, kind of like that Ford. Well, I didn't find anything. There wasn't anything really useful. But... As long as I'm in SPS, as long as I'm looking at this stuff, let's check out the instrument cluster. Let's see if there's anything for that. Well, it turns out there is a setup option for the instrument cluster in this 2014 Chevy Cruze. And what it does is a can calibration, meaning that 
this instrument cluster is going to learn the vehicle via the CAN network and kind of makes sense for what happened. Our battery was, you know, disconnected for however long it took them to do the clutch and the instrument cluster forgot the calibration, forgot the configuration for the vehicle that it was connected to, that it didn't have a rear axle of service and it should be in miles. And so I go ahead and I do this CAN configuration through SPS in the instrument cluster. It's a couple minute process, went through, and all of a sudden the instrument cluster switched back to the way it was supposed to and actually gained a bunch of different options <laughs> that it didn't have, but it learned the vehicle. It learned all the options on that particular vehicle. The mileage was correct and it read in miles, the service rear axle message was gone, and everything else that used to be on that information center of the instrument cluster was back. So that was it. So it's kind of a little tactic there. If you run into a situation like that, I mean, that might apply to multiple General Motors vehicles where you have a situation, maybe there's a battery disconnect, maybe there's even a module replacement through GM SPS. I mean, just pointing out the importance of being able to have, you know, J2534 programming options or factory level programming programming options available to you at your shop or, you know, your ability to offer that to other shops, you're going to need that for something as simple as a battery disconnect to do a clutch. That's it. I know the text pretty well at this shop. He asked me what I did to fix it. I was like, oh, it told me the clutch was in backwards. And you know, you get, you get a good laugh from that. But anyways, we fixed that one. That was easy, nice and smooth again. I like them when they go easy. All right. On to my final vehicle for the day. And uh, I was glad to have my student along with me for all these different vehicles. This was, again, a really interesting day with some interesting problems. The last one we go to is a 2006 Jeep Grand Cherokee. And the original reason that I was called to the shop was to program a new instrument cluster. And I'd done a little reading after they called me because they said, can you program this? I was like, sure. Yeah, I got YTAC. I got a DRB3 emulator, uh, whatever we need to do. I'll, I'll program this thing. And it is a CAN bus vehicle. So it would be a YTAC vehicle. But Doing some reading in the service information, you don't actually need to program these clusters. Brand new, if you plug them into the vehicle, much like a tip-em, learns the vehicle, and kind of like that CAN configuration of the cluster and the cruise, but it should automatically learn the vehicle and be equipped for that particular vehicle once you plug it in. Well, it turns out they had a used module and I think uh, they wanted to adjust the mileage, but I asked them a few more questions when I got there. What are we replacing this for? What's going on here? And they said there was a draw on the vehicle. That was the original problem. And then it turned into a no start. I was like, well, that's interesting. I was like, is it currently a no start? And it was. All right. Well, let's pick one path and go with it, see what we find. And that's what we did. We went after this no start and it didn't crank nothing course let's do an auto scan let's see what's going on here and they had the used cluster installed so i didn't know is there an anti-theft issue or something like that well it turns out i could not communicate with anything on the vehicle that pertained to the interior can so we have two can networks on this vehicle powertrain can which is going to be your abs powertrain transmission control module and then you have an interior can 
which is everything inside the vehicle. This is instrument cluster. This is security, heated seats, radio, HVAC, occupant classification, restraint control module, sunroof. Uh, there was a lot of modules on the interior can of this vehicle, but I couldn't talk to any of them. So that leads me to believe my interior can is down. There's no communication there based on what my scan tool is telling me. So what I need to do is access this interior can and see what's going on. I'm going to pull up my U-scope and just see what's happening on the network uh, here. What are the voltage levels? And I will say on the low speed or interior can of some of these Chryslers, the voltage level I've noticed has is different than your traditional high speed can of uh, two and a half to three and a half and two and a half to one and a half. Um, I have seen some different voltage levels, but the pattern looks pretty similar to a normal can network. And that's what I'm expecting to see. So the easiest place for me at this point was not the DLC uh, because this goes to our front control module uh, out under the hood and then connects to the interior can. I don't have direct access through my DLC, but the instrument cluster that they replaced, they still had access to the connector. It was just kind of hanging there. So that control module, the instrument cluster was on the low speed can and I've got a wire right there. Let's just back rope that with my U-scope and see what we got. Looks like a really ugly pattern, okay? You wouldn't have to know much about CAN networks to be able to recognize that this signal is not right. Nothing's happening. And of course, my scan tool confirms that for me, that there is no communication on this network. Okay, so what do we do here? What's going on? And there was something on this network. It just, it, it didn't look anything like uh, actual communication as you'd expect on a CAN network. So where do we go from here? What's How do we tackle this problem? Now, of course, they said they were trying to fix a draw and now it's a no start. Is it this used cluster? Well, we plugged in the old one and it was the same thing. Still a no start, still a no com. So I guess I can safely assume it wasn't the cluster. Um, of course, it's easy enough to test the network um, with the cluster disconnected, uh, same thing. Uh, there's no communication. There's nothing that's happening on that network that looks anything like uh, actual data packets being transferred. So where do we go from here? What I like to do in this situation, because I assume there's a module or maybe a short somewhere that's pulling down this network that incorporates the entire interior of the vehicle. It's a hard fault, which is nice, but it's a ton of modules and I didn't count them all. I'd guess there's upwards of 10 modules that I have across the interior of this Jeep Grand Cherokee that I have to find which one is causing my problem. So what I like to do here, and I've talked about this before, and I have learned this technique by going to training. So I suggest you go to training so that you can learn stuff like this and see uh, people use techniques like this is to divide and conquer. Okay. So the advantage to a CAN network is everybody talks all the time. Everybody's got free reign to talk, meaning that if we split the network into two or into sections, all the modules can still communicate. They can still talk. Uh, now, there was a caveat here with the low speed can, which I will bring up, but 
I was still able to use this method to find where my problem was. So what I want to do is find a connector within the system that I can separate and divide this into half. Okay. And then we'll look at both sides of the network and see where is my problem. All right. Sounds easy enough. So I look at the redrawn wiring diagram for Mitchell. Now, here's where you want to be careful because uh, Mitchell diagrams, and I think I've talked about this before, at least uh, in a conversation with somebody else on the podcast, the redrawn diagrams don't show you all the connectors that are located within this network. They'll show you everything on the network in a nice, easy page. And, and that can be nice because sometimes you just want to know what's on the network. What is on this low speed network? It can be nice for that. But if I'm looking for a place to separate the network, a redrawn diagram, one of the color diagrams, and you can get these off of Identifix. I think you can get them off of Mitchell now too. You might be missing a connector and a connector might be what you're looking for to split up that network. And of course that is what I'm looking for here. So I'm going to go to the Chrysler diagrams, the Mopar diagrams, and see, is there a connector I can use to split these? And it turns out there is, and it turns out it's in the left kick panel. And this connector in the left kick panel, um, and you got to be careful with this because this connector not only disconnects the network, but a ton of other circuits. So always consider what else am I unplugging when I disconnect a big connector like this? Yeah, I'm separating the circuit, but am I cutting power to the other modules that are on the other side of that connector? And I, I think I did that here. So we, we do want to consider that, but um, this is a place where I can separate the network and I can look at both sides of it. So just consider the connector you're disconnecting to divide the CAN network. Is there anything else in that connector that supplies power to the modules that are suspect that are on that network? And in this case, it did. So uh, we want to we want to consider that, and maybe in that case, maybe deepen the connector if it comes down to it. If you really need to divide it at that point. Um, anyways, I disconnected this connector in the left kick panel in order to separate the network into two halves. And really what this was doing was everything under my dash and my restraint control module, and then everything else in the vehicle. So this would be stuff under the seats, like power seats, uh, heated seat module, passenger classification, uh, everything in the rear of the vehicle. There were several modules in the headliner. Uh, there was a sunroof module, a ton of modules outside of the actual dashboard area. And really that's what I'm doing. Is it dash or is it rest of interior? Where's my problem? Now, when I separated this, the dash side still had some activity on the network wires, but it looked really bad. It basically didn't change anything. It looked terrible on that side. But on the other side of the vehicle, so this is seats under the carpet, in the headliner, there was nothing. And I believe the reason for this was because that connector that I disconnected had many, many circuits and I cut power to all these modules. I basically turned everything off so I couldn't see anything. And normally, again, in a CAN network, everybody talks, even if you separate the network, you still have communication to both sides of an open connector. And you can check for that and you can see which one looks like crap. So basically, I had activity on the dash side of that harness and beyond the dash, 
I had nothing. I had nothing going on there. And I mean, like nothing. There was not anything happening. But here's what I had. On the dash side, it still looked like garbage. It still looked like this nasty waveform that didn't represent data packets at all. So at this point, I can safely assume whatever is causing my communications problem is under my dash, which eliminates my modules down, actually cut them into half of my possibilities. And that's the whole goal of the divide and conquer. Split that CAN network up and see which side of it still has the problem. And depending on the application, you could try some communication with a scan tool. Didn't really help me here, but I was able to use the U-scope to point me in the right direction. So now really what I'm down to is the cluster, the HVAC, the radio, the restraint controller, and the skim module. Okay, and this is, again is the key. When you put the key in, there's a transponder, there's a halo, reads the key information um, that's under the dash as well. So I've really eliminated this down to several modules. And at this point, now I'm okay unplugging stuff. Well, I already kind of confirmed that the cluster wasn't the problem because I unplugged that and it still looks like a garbage waveform. Okay, so that's eliminated. It is super easy to pull back uh, the panel on the HVAC and unplug that. That was easy. And at that point, the radio is right there. So I yank that back, unplug, unplug the radio, same thing. Okay, so now we're down to restraint control module and the skim module. So I pull the panel down below the steering column. I want to see what's going on behind there, uh, see if I can access this skim module. And when I get there, I want to unplug the skim, skim module for the security by the key. I see that there's some wires tied into this thing that are not factory. And I follow them over and it turns out that there is an aftermarket remote start, which there it wasn't a key fob for this, but somebody had tied in this aftermarket remote start. Of course, they need to tie it into the security system of the vehicle in order for the engine to start. And as soon as I saw that, I was kind of frustrated because, uh, you know, usually I look for these things first, but there wasn't really any indications that this was here. So I unplug that and immediately I hear the dash kind of, it made a bing noise. And, and I knew almost immediately as soon as I did that, okay, this is it. I turn the key, the engine starts and it runs. I'm like, okay, awesome. And so that was our problem. It was an aftermarket remote start that was tied into the low speed can to feed whatever data it needed to to start the vehicle. When you hit that remote, um, that module had shorted out. That module had given it up and and shorted out that network or caused corrupt data to be present on that network that no module could communicate. Unplugged, it was fine. That was it. That's all we needed to do. Now, uh, going back to his original problem, did mention there was a draw. I did notice that the lift glass ajar light was on even after we did this and uh, we messed around with the glass that didn't seem to be out of place. I told him you need to address this issue as well, but um, that, that might be causing a draw, but I think you guys can handle that. And they thought the same thing uh, that they could take care of a, a jar switch or whatever it needed to be to fix that. But uh, that was the cause of my no start. So anyways, 
That is just a one day in the life of a mobile technician and the type of things that you might run into. So if you're considering that sort of career, I know a lot of people find the mobile technician career option attractive. It might be uh, something to pursue. Uh, I think it is. I think it's fun. I think it's challenging. You run into all kinds of crazy, weird, unique issues. Check it out. See if it's something that is needed in your area and the shops that are around you. Why not? Why not make your your life interesting and challenging? Um, I think it's a great thing to pursue. Um, if you got any questions on that, um, there are some YouTube videos that have been out recently about mobile work. Uh, Brandon Dills, Keith Perkins, Cody Gaddy, they've had these get-togethers that talk about uh, mobile diagnostics and the things that go into it. Check those out. See if that's something for you, uh, something to, to pursue. Anyways, that's it for this one. I hope you enjoyed it. Hope you got something out of that. Other than that, let's get out there, start fixing the world one car at a time.